Welcome back to the bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. Today, we're immensely privileged to be in conversation with Professor David Crystal, world-renowned linguist and academic. While the modern digital age has amplified his voice, he has been researching, teaching, and writing about the fascinating intricacies of language for decades. He's the author of the monumental Cambridge Encyclopedia for the English Language, a masterpiece that chronicles the journey of the English language through time. He is also a vocal advocate for the view that texting is far from being a linguistic disaster and instead is a remarkable and creative expansion of the English language. But that's just scratching the surface and we're very excited to be delving into some highly interesting subjects today and discussing topics ranging from language death to is swearing allowed and why should it be allowed and why is it healthy anyway it's a big welcome here to david crystal we're honored to have you on the podcast and thanks for joining us well thank you lucas it's a delight to be with you virtually at least i mean it'd be nicer to be in oxford but uh, uh i'm in wales and that's quite nice too oh well <laughs> exactly yeah and i would have to make it back as well so it would be you know it'd be complicated but it's nice to join you anyway so before we get into our proper questions. We do this all, with all of our guests. As with a loaf podcast, we like to have a fun little icebreaker and ask all our guests their favourite bread. Favourite bread? Well, being Wales, of course, it, uh, the word for bread in Welsh is barra. And there's mm. a lovely uh, thing called barra breath. Breath means speckled, speckled bread. It's uh, bread with currants in it and it's lovely. <laughs> That's my favourite. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, do you just eat that plain, or do you add stuff to oh, it? Oh, you usually that put butter on it, or something like that. Uh, I, I find it butter. a bit bland if it's if it's lacking butter. But but you wouldn't put jam on it or anything like that. No, no, no. That's heretical. Oh, that's heretical. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I was speaking to my my girlfriend actually two days ago. I was like, well, I I studied David Crystal for A levels, and I said, well, I'm getting him on the podcast, and she was so excited. She said, David Crystal cured my lisp, <laughs> and I was really? I was I was shocked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, basically, nice. what what happened was when she was younger, she she had like her front two teeth fell out. Yeah. And basically she used to pronounce the S sounds with the, with the back of her mouth. So she'd say my name, Lukash, like that when she was younger. And, um, and no one really realized or told her, maybe they were just not trying to make her insecure, but she was basically reading your book at like 12 years old. And she, she came across the way that certain vowels and consonants are supposed to be pronounced. Mm. And, and she just realized then that she was she was doing it all wrong and she she used your your book to kind of teach herself into into fixing that impediment so to speak wow yeah a, a, a book speech therapist uh, as it were yeah <laughs> well that's yeah, great and yeah. um nice story yeah and i wanted to tell her th- <laughs> yeah thank you from her um, oh well, well but give following her, give her a warm wave back <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I will. And she'll, she'll probably be watching this when it when it's out. But following from that, it's actually, it's an interesting question, how much maybe like technical knowledge about linguistics can actually teach us about, for example, accents and, and actors, for example, if they want to learn a new accent, for example, studying linguistics. Yeah, well, I think I mean, we're talking about applied linguistics now, I think, really. Mm. 
Um, linguistics will give us all the answers we want about the actual phonetic character of sounds and the distribution of accents and all that sort of thing. But when you're talking to the general public or working with other professionals that are interested in language, whatever the domain is, then you've got to start moderating, manipulating. In a sense, applied linguistics is a world of half-truths or half-stories. You can't say too much Otherwise, you're going to swamp people. You can only say as much mm. as is necessary in order to get the job done. And uh, this is quite tricky. And one of the important things that you have to do is make sure that whatever your intention is, whatever the field of study you're trying to put across, you get it checked out by the people you're going to be working with. It's no good just, you know, saying, I've got the solution to your problem. You know, I've got something here. You use it now. No, no. You've got to get the people to um, take your perspective, work with it, operate with it, react to it. And then something interesting might happen. Some, some kind of dialogue might take place. I'll give you an example. I don't know what the book was that uh, your girlfriend looked at, but um, depending upon the age she was, but once upon a time, I wrote a, a book called A Little Book of Language. And it was part of a series that Yale University Press were doing uh, called A Little Book of, Little Book of Everything, Little Book of Philosophy, Little Book of the History of the World, and so on, Little Book of Literature. And they asked me to do a little mm. book of language. And it's aimed at 12-year-olds, you see, or young teenagers. So I had a go at writing this, and then I thought, Do you know, I'd better get this read by a 12-year-old just to make sure that I've got it right. So I found a tame 12-year-old near where I live and passed the manuscript over, and I said to her, and I paid her for it too. I mean, it's a professional job. Um, and I said, uh, read this underline anything you don't understand well mm. lucas ollie i mean the the criticism i got from her was worse than any academic criticism i've ever had in my life <laughs> she i mean she just underlined this and that and the, i suddenly realized that i had no idea how 12 year olds think operate what their expectations are. I'll give you just one quick example of the problem. There was a chapter in there on pseudonyms. And uh, for those who don't know, pseudonyms are names that you, you put on other than your real name for some professional reason. Lots of film stars have got pseudonyms, for instance, and pop singers and so on. And in order to illustrate this, I said, I gave examples of John Wayne. And she underlined John Wayne. And I said to her, do you not know who John Wayne is? He's the most famous cowboy in the history of Hollywood. <laughs> you, you, you don't know? She said, I've no idea. I have no idea who John Wayne is. I have never watched it, you know. And I suddenly realized there was a yeah. kind of generation gap or even a culture gap of some sort between my perception of the world and the perception of a modern 12-year-old youngster. And that's the sort of thing I mean. I then had to, of course, work out with her what some uh, people were that she would know about that had pseudonyms. And we talked about, you know, Madonna and Eminem and uh, and, and so on. Uh, and in the end, we, we got some examples we both agreed about.
That's the sort of thing I mean. You can never totally anticipate the problems that the the people you're working with are going to come up with. So you've got to spend the time exploring their world, their mindset, if you like, before you finally decide which aspects of linguistics are going to be the ones that will actually appeal to them and which they're going to be able to use in a very practical and everyday way. I was wondering what um, examples you ended up landing on. You said Eminem. Were there any others that maybe a 12-year-old at the time would have known? Well, uh, I mean, the irony is that at at the time they were very well known, and I'm not sure they are now. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're asking the wrong person now, Ollie, actually, because uh, um, uh, yeah. my, my <laughs> awareness of contemporary pop singers is not as good as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you had to take it on. Um, yeah, it's interesting what you say about entering into someone's universe and how even these minute differences in language. So that's that's an example of vocab can show different universes. And you've talked about that with class before and how language pronunciation, etc., can be an indication of class. I was wondering how important you think, you know, if you've heard the term code switching, mm. how important you think code switching is, for example, to like a middle class metropolitan accent for success in, in business and other worlds, and, and whether that's something that should be actively cultivated in, in schools and so on. Yeah. Well, code switching is uh, a very uh, underestimated aspect of language. It's universal. Uh, any language I've ever studied has code switching in it. It's an absolutely natural kind of thing that you do if you're mixing in a situation where there are different types of people with different language levels or different language backgrounds or different relationships to you. Uh, code switching is, in some language situations, extremely Absolutely every day. You can't, you can't not hear it, you know, especially between different languages. And uh, it's all a question of identity, of rapport. I mean, why would you code switch? Because I want to be in contact with you. I want a warmer contact with you than I'd be able to achieve by not code switching. Now, code switching, when it first developed, was with reference to different languages, and then it became different dialects and, of course, as you mentioned, uh, different accents as well. But this is the, the story of language for me. I mean, for me, there are two main forces that drive language. One is the need for intelligibility. We have to understand each other, and that promotes the use of a standard language and a standard accent maybe in some cultures and so on. The other big force is the need to express identity, and that promotes the use of different languages and different dialects and different accents and so on. Now, of the two, identity is the one that gets the headlines. I mean, putting it another mm -hmm. way, intelligibility is for the head and identity is for the heart. And the... the the whole point about accent variation and, and code switching and all these notions and social linguistic diversity and all that aspect of our subject is that these are the things that actually make individuals and communities work successfully or not. And therefore, for me, they are at the center of the whole business of linguistics, not at the periphery.
This is the big change, of course, in the last 50 years or so. I mean, once upon a time, linguistics was seen as, you know, the study of language with variation and things being a kind of, you know, later aspect that you'd study. And then as a result of developments in, you know, social linguistics and all the other areas of that kind and, and applied linguistics too, that becomes more centre stage. So for me, code switching is not a kind of peripheral thing that sometimes happens. It's there all the time in some shape or form. And even in a country like ours, where an awful lot of people are monolingual and monodialectal, so they think, and mono, I don't know what the adjective from accent is, monoaccentological, is it? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, they think they've only got one way of talking doesn't take long before you can point out to them actually you've got more than one you accommodate you you vary your accent depending on the person you're talking to or on the situation that you are in and all these notions of formality and informality and all the rest of it suddenly become uh, very evident to them once it's pointed out it's uh it's at the center it's at the yeah. heart of the subject for me yeah, it's so interesting. I I live in Malta. I'm half Maltese, half German. And mm. when I'm with my Maltese friends, it's not only the language and um, it's not necessarily the words that I use because I do, for example, swear in Maltese around them. But it's also maybe the intonation and sometimes even the syntax when I'm speaking in English with my Maltese friends. I use different syntax than when I'm speaking with friends, not necessarily a more formal situation, but just because I'm with people who I grew up with in a different location, it almost feels like my brain is programmed to speak in a different way related to the memories of that location. I don't know yeah. if you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I'm glad you put it that way because you've highlighted a very important point that we're talking about all levels of language here. Uh, mm. We're not just talking about vocabulary. We're talking about grammar, uh, both syntax and morphology. We're talking about both aspects of phonology, the segmental side and the non-segmental side, the intonation, tone of voice and all the rest of it, any of these factors can come together and be the basis of the perception of code switching or whatever it all, convergence or divergence of accents or whatever it might be. Very important to note that um, all of these aspects are important because in the popular mind, people just think of one thing. They think, say, of an accent, which just means pronunciation, or they think of vocabulary, and that's it. But in fact, code switching involves all of these. Yeah, and I suppose that also relates to this idea of snobbery so when someone considers somebody else a snob it might not necessarily only be because of the language that they use or the way that they phrase things it's also maybe an rp accent or the way that they pause between certain words or perhaps the way even non-verbals i'd say the way that they smile before they say a certain sentence mm. Yeah, we mustn't forget the uh, the nonverbal side of things, the the semiotics of the situation. That's another big change in linguistics, isn't it? Over recent decades, uh, once upon a time, language was there, and everything else was over there. And now people realise that uh, there's far more body language, to put it in its popular phrase, um, than people ever anticipated. Uh, and we're talking about all aspects of body language here. We're talking about the kinesics, 
the facial expressions and bodily gestures, and then the proxemics as well, that is the uh, our touch behavior to each other, uh, the distance in which we, we separate mm. ourselves when we're communicating with each other, the uh, uh, the orientation of our bodies as we communicate with each other. And these are just as culturally specific as are the linguistic aspects of things. Yeah, I suppose it's even the clothes we wear, this idea of the supra-verbal, I think it's called. Oh, yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and when, when you, it's very difficult to study and understand these things when you stay within a culture. But as soon as you start to encounter different cultures, the differences become obvious straight away. The, the, the people will notice each other's different behavior and either understand it and sympathize with it because they, they know you and they know you're not intending to offend or anything like that. Or the contrary, that they get upset by it because they don't know you or they don't understand the situation. And a lot of, a lot of communicative breakdown takes place because of that. On that point, you definitely need a mental switch, though, at least I would say, when you're, when you're encountering these other cultures or ways of speaking. So, for example, in England, there's a lot of snobbery about multicultural London English uh, amongst like middle class white people in metropolitan London and stuff. Mm. And that it's they look at it and it, they say it's not proper English. There's sort of like a normative element. Do you think there's like ever anything to snobbery and language in, in the sense of some dialects are better at communicating? Some languages have impact on ways of thinking, which are negative and some languages don't. Do you think there's anything to like the competencies of language and different and different dialects and languages? Well, the basic principle, of course, is that all languages are equal, all dialects are equal, and so on and so forth from a linguistic point of view. Mm -hmm. That is, they developed in order to express the, the culture, the mindset, the community that they express. End of. The problem only comes when you get... Uh, social change, cultural change, uh, diversity, incomers, outgoers, and all the rest of it. And then different mindsets, different linguistic varieties, should we put it that way, uh, come into contact with each other. And then people are immediately judgmental. It seems to be part of the human condition. They always have been. Um, well, I say always. Uh, as far as records go back, um, one can see people uh, criticizing other people because they are not like them. And in the case of English, you can trace this sort of thing right back to Old English, you know, right back through the Middle Ages, and you'll get quotations about, um, you know, they're not the same as us. Uh, we, they, they don't speak like us, therefore they don't like us. And that's a slippery slope down towards all sorts of antagonisms, or it seems to be part of the human condition. Um, One of the big things that's happened, I think, since the, well, in the last hundred years, is that thanks to linguistics and to some other subjects too, anthropology and and a few others, um, people have become more aware of the nature of that condition and are aware that just as one respects diversity in other areas, um, such as race and so on, uh, so one should respect other people for their differences of language. Seems to be one of the last bastions of difficulty, however. You know, we still find that sort of antagonism, um, snobbishness, if you like to call it that, but it's 
two-way snobbishness, you know, up as well as down. Um, yeah. And language, I think, still has some way to go before it achieves the same degree of publicity and understanding and tolerance as some of the other social barriers that we've been able to see broken down over the last few years. So I still encounter um, this kind of antagonism towards towards linguistic difference, but it's much, much less than it used to be. When I was your age, it was it was ferocious, I, I found. You know, people were being um, pilloried for a particular accent all over the place. The radio, you'd never hear accents other than RP, for instance, and things like that, other than in a jocular situation, you know, a comedic accent or something of that kind. These days, you turn on the radio, and what do you hear? You know, you hear, oh, I don't know, Ian McMillan on Radio 3 every Friday, the verb at 10 o'clock, strong Yorkshire accent there, I'm proud of it, and everybody accepting it, and nobody criticising it at all. And that kind of thing would have been inconceivable a couple of generations ago. Yeah, I think, well, I suppose it's just that language like you say, it's just the greatest affirmation of one's identity and one's culture. So linguistic an antagonism really just points at something deeper. And Yeah, always. You know, yeah, there's always something behind the linguistic point. You don't like Americanisms, that's maybe because you don't like Americans. You know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely true. And in the way that it's a, an affirmation of identity, I don't know if you saw recently that um, Jamaica is... There's a big move in Jamaica right now to make Patois an official language alongside English. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, and uh, and and that's a movement that's happening all all over the place. Really, that 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 attitude of respect for other members of the community that are not the same as you um, is manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. And at, a, at, at the top level, as it were, at the level of official languages, we're seeing in several parts of the world um, a uh, what, what would have been called a dialect now being upgraded into or a movement to upgrade it into something much more prestigious. Yes. Mm, Patois is actually a really good example, I think, of yeah. somewhere right on the border, in my opinion, between a la and I'd like to hear your opinion on it, but in my opinion, between a language and a dialect of mm. English, because it's something that I can understand when I hear it. Mm. And so I was wondering, wh where, do you, where do you kind of draw that boundary? Because despite having its own grammar system and syntax, it, it's understandable by people in English and vice versa. So it's quite, a, it's quite like on the border, I think. Yeah, it is on the border. That's right. Um, well, we have to remember the old the old saw that uh, came out of the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. Weinreich saw that uh, a dialect is a a language is a dialect, you know, with an army and a navy. You remember that one? If you if you if you're speaking something that people call a dialect, but you've got the power. Uh, then you can call it a language and don't you dare say otherwise because we've got the power to support it, you know. And if you haven't got mm -hmm. that kind of power, then there will always be this tension between language and dialect. We don't have to go as far as Jamaica to illustrate this point. We just go have to go north of the border into Scotland because there we have three language situations. We have English spoken with a variety of Scots accents. We have Scottish Gaelic, which is a Celtic language. And then we have Scots, the language of Robbie Burns, 
and a strong, long tradition of speaking in a dialect form that if you go north of the border, for many people, you don't call it a dialect because you get into serious trouble. No, they consider it a language. And the reason they do so is because um, it has as much distinctiveness in its form as many other dialects around the world which have achieved status of being languages. And it has a literature and all kinds of things, you know, the Bible in Scots and all the rest of it, all the institutional things that you'd associate with a full language are there in Scots. And so there is a strong movement to say that Scots is not a dialect, it is a language. But the problem is, do you have the power, that is politically and socially and all the rest of it, to make that dialect linguistic in the language sense on the part of the majority of the population. Because once you do that, all kinds of other consequences come into play, sometimes financial, sometimes political, and so on and so forth. So that kind of tension is up there north of the border. And probably if you go around the world, virtually every country will have some sort of analogy to that kind of situation. In some cases, uh, the situation has resolved. I suppose the best example of that is in the countries of former Yugoslavia um, in Southern Europe. Now, in, if you go back to the 19, say 1990, there were several dialects of Serbo-Croatian. There was the, uh, uh, the dialect of Serbia, the dialect of Slovenia, the dialect of, of uh, Croatia and so on and so forth. These are all Macedonia. These are all dialects of Serbo-Croatian. Then there was a civil war. Mm. And as a result of that, Serbia, Croatia and the others all achieved their independence. In other words, now they have power. Now they have a political identity. And now no longer can you say that these dialect, the, these language usages are dialects. You have to say they are languages. People in Serbia speak Serbian. People in Croatia speak Croatian and so on. Now, the situation linguistically hasn't changed, you see. The, the language is just the same as it was when these things were called dialects, and now they're called languages. And it's all a result of the political and other scenarios that lie behind it. So we're not talking linguistics here so much. We are talking power politics and all the rest of it. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you can necessarily even separate them. And I love the way that you you refer to language as something that's so living and that that's an army, for example. So it's got this force behind it in, in a political way, uh, economic way, socially, uh, geographically. I, I find it interesting. And in terms of language as something living, uh, I wanted to touch on quickly language death, which is something that you speak a lot about. I was wondering if sometimes it can be a good thing for a language to die, if that's part of the healthy cycle to a certain extent, because you also speak about this need for linguistic diversity, how it's important, but could it also be maybe a good thing evolving to, to different languages? Well, some languages have a natural end. Uh, I mean, when we look back over history, uh, of all the languages that there have been since the human beings started to speak, um, probably the vast majority of them have died at some point or another. I mean, think, you know, think of the language of the biblical era, for instance, with Babylonian and all of those, you know, they're all gone. Uh, why have they gone, though? Uh, because the community has gone. The society that motivated them has gone. Um, once again, it's language 
being in be, being a reflex of the cultural, political, and so on situation that gave rise to them. So these are the only circumstances in which a um, it, one would say that the death of a language is a kind of natural and acceptable thing because the community that uh, would want to speak them as a matter of identity has disappeared. Now, this is happening all over the world still. Of the 6,000 or so languages that now exist in the world, a couple of decades ago, people were talking about 7,000 or so languages, and uh, an ethnologue and uh, other organizations are still saying 7,000, but in the interim, several hundred languages have disappeared, so it can't be 7,000 anymore. It must be nearer six. Um, and in uh, these kinds of situations, what we're seeing is two types of things. One, a community dying out, which is the kind of natural situation we talked about. And the other is where the community does not die out, and yet their language somehow or other is beginning to be endangered and possibly might become extinct. And these are the ones that are concerning everybody. Because the reason for that kind of dying out is uh, because uh, one one culture has superimposed itself on another or in a more natural way has just become the dominant culture of that community and people wanting a better quality of life feel that if they learn the um the language of the now superior community they will get that better quality of life if not for themselves and for their children and their children's children and so uh, you get this phenomenon of the first generation who um don't understand the language of the community of the of the superpower as it were very well but they're getting a bit familiar with it they have children they say you're going to learn that language better than we did so the that second generation becomes uh, bilingual in the two languages and then because the second the second language the ancestral language is no longer felt to be so useful in that society they don't teach it to their children mm. and you get the very common situation around the world of grandparents and grandchildren not being able to understand each other or not feeling comfortable in talking to each other because the grandparents have the ancestral language the grandchildren have the new uh, powerful language and you get this kind of conflict. And this sort of situation is all over the world. And now we're aware of it, but only in, you know, in the last 30 years. So it's early days. Now that we're aware of it, people are doing their best to reverse the situation. That is to make sure that the second and third generations have pride, access, uh, support, for maintaining the ancestral language alongside the new powerful language. And there are now several success stories. Well, heck, I'm living in Wales, and that's a perfect example. Uh, you know, Welsh was definitely dying out in the early decades of the 20th century. It's now very safe, in my view. It's uh, used by 20% or so of the population. It's supported by government acts. Uh, money is put in and so on to uh, help maintain it. Story isn't over. You know, a language will only be successful according as the generation that's using it passes it on to their children. So that's got to happen. 
But uh, there are so many success stories around the world now, and UNESCO, of course, has come on board with a with with uh, support for all of this. And um, you know, I reckon the the future is reasonably optimistic as far as endangered languages are concerned. Though that doesn't mean one needs to be complacent. That is, it it reminds me of Maltese a little bit because well, you mentioned yeah. how. Uh, yeah, because I yeah I speak Maltese. However, I would say that I speak Maltese significantly less fluently than my my mother and my grandmother, partially because of globalization. My my father is German, moved to Malta, and partially also I think with Malta becoming bilingual, so there was this language question struggle between Italian and mm. English, and then English won out. Um, I feel a lot more people are speaking English in Malta, but Maltese. Mm. Uh, slightly less and we're the only country in the world that speaks that language it's a Semitic mm, language absolutely. but 400,000 mm. people is it for example enough to sustain that language uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the situation in Malta there but it's, oh, it's quite I was there, interesting there, uh, a couple of decades ago spent a week there um, mm. and so I'm fairly fairly familiar um, it's not a matter of numbers Uh it, it, you you can a language can survive perfectly well with you know hundred thousand fifty thousand or whatever it might be um, all depends on other circumstances whether that statistic is uh, dynamic enough uh, to produce the maintenance that one wants but you know remember there's a fourth generation effect I didn't mention it just before remember that first generation where the, the the people don't speak the language well. Second generation where they become bilingual. Third generation where their children um, speak the new language and lose the old one. They have children. Now, the fourth generation are quite well off. They, they've achieved quality of life. You know, they're, they're doing quite well, really, thanks to their parents and grandparents. And now they've got time to sit back and say, hmm... Yeah. Who are we exactly as a culture? Who are we? And they look around and they say to their parents, Dad, Mum, you know, who who are we? And they say, you are the indigenous community of such and such, you see, and you should be proud of that. Well, yes, yes, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm Maltese, definitely, or whatever it might be. Um, did we have a language once? Yes, say the parents. Why can't I speak it? Oh, say the parents, um, because because we never really passed it on. Why didn't you pass it on? And you get the fourth generation effect, which is antagonism, criticism, really, of the elders of the community for not maintaining the language. And that's where you get this revival movement, which is so common nowadays, where this fourth generation tries to get the language back. And as long as linguists have made that language available in the form of grammars and manuals of phonology and, and dictionaries and encyclopedias and so on and so forth, then you can get the language back. Um, and all over the world now, we see these revivalist movements where people are, 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 
uh, kids are coming together and parents too, and as it were, relearning the language that a couple of generations before was being used by uh, the the populace. So you don't need to have large numbers for that kind of movement to be successful. Um, you know, just a few thousand maybe will be enough to get a language off the ground again. Yeah, I don't mm. want to speak for Lucas, but I think... Um... I think Malta is still waiting for that fourth generation a little bit. I think, I don't know, Lucas, you tell me, but I think the general sentiment just for in terms of globalization is moving towards English a, a little hard bit. Hard to say, hard to say, but yeah. maybe, maybe. We'll see, I suppose. But I, mm. I think that's the stage that Jamaica is in is obviously, you know, Patois never really died out, but there's a, a, a proud revival. And that just brings me back. I just wanted to push back on something you said earlier a little bit where you were saying that, uh, you know, uh, a dialect is a language if it has an army and a state. And the, the point that I think I was originally trying to make was that the reason that I found the boundaries of language to be difficult there is because there's almost perfect understanding, even though the syntax, et cetera, is very different between an English person can understand a Patois person speaking and somebody who speaks Patois can understand English. And it was for that reason, I think, I don't know what the situation is with your example with Serbs and Croats and whether they understand each other, but it's for that reason I thought that it could maybe be encapsulated in a language, even if, you know, there are those differences. Oh, they can certainly un understand each other. Um, but at, at the same time, um, there are, you know, it's a bit like British and American English in some ways. Uh, that is, you know, I can mm. understand Americans most of the time unless they start talking about baseball or something and then I'm totally <laughs> exactly. lost. And conversely, you know, they, they say, what's all this cricket about, you know? And so... Uh, it doesn't take one doesn't have there aren't there aren't too many features of language needed in order to produce the kind of identity distinctiveness that we've been talking about when you actually quantify it there aren't that many differences between British and American English if you go to the dictionaries and look it all up you get about there are I don't know about four or five thousand points of lexical difference most of which are pretty obscure and just a few hundred of points that are really very common um, in terms of grammar uh, th there was a big grammar that came out a few in the 1990s called the comprehensive grammar of the English language and uh, the authors of that book um, were anxious to draw attention to differences in grammar between British and American English and the index at the back of the book which I know very well because I wrote it um, has about 25 or 30 instances of differences between the two varieties you know, we would say, I've just eaten. Americans say, I just ate. Um, mm. Or, you know, it's quarter to something. And some Americans say it's quarter of something. That kind of thing. Um, not that many, but enough to mean that if you listen to an, a Brit or an American talking, you will notice these things because they're quite frequent in the discourse of everyday speech. And then, of course, there's the accent uh, side of things, which also doesn't interfere, but, uh, but makes it very clear who is speaking from which part of the world. And so, um, yeah, people will understand each other, undoubtedly. Uh, it doesn't take long to become familiar with a patois or whatever it might be, um, especially these days when the internet is so helpful in that respect. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the internet because I was I was literally about to mention it and say oh, I think yeah. almost internet internet English is more different than American English and and British English. I'd say at least. Well, the, the one thing I've learned about all my studies of the internet is uh, uh, that it's so difficult to generalize uh, about it because it changes so fast. I mean, mm-hmm. it's extraordinary, really. And, and now there has to be a disclaimer from me. Um, I haven't really studied the uh, language of the internet in the past you know, six or seven years, really. And as a result, I have no idea what's going on out there at the moment. I mean, I have never ticked or talked, uh, for instance. Um, <laughs> I, I just don't know what's going on out there. This is your generation, Stay off not it. mine. Stay off it if you can. <laughs> yeah. It's a very insidious platform. It's made to addict you. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was doing it, um, the, the thing that struck me was how – difficult it was to keep pace with the, the rate of change. Uh, the example that comes to mind always for me is, is Twitter. Twitter mm. arrives in 2006. Um, it should never have uh, arrived, really. P- people in 2005, if you'd said to them, hey, we all know about text messaging. Um, it's really cool. Uh, but text messaging is between individuals. Uh, so wouldn't it be a good idea to put your text messages on the Internet so that everybody can see them? And if you'd said that in 2005, people had said you were crazy. But that's what Twitter was. Twitter was SMS for the Internet, a short messaging service for the Internet. So instead of me saying to you, I'm eating cornflakes, I tell the world that I'm eating cornflakes. <laughs> and the world wants to know. And, and this is this is what made Twitter so successful. Now, at the beginning, you were given a prompt, and the prompt was, what are you doing? And mm. you would say, I am on the train, I'm eating cornflakes, or whatever it happens to be. Now, linguistically, there were immediate consequences of that. If I ask you the question, what are you doing? You're going to give me back present tenses, first-person pronouns, and all sorts of other constraints because of the nature of the question. So I was studying, like a number of others were, Twitter language in 2007, 2008, and making generalizations like the one I've just mentioned. Then, in November 2009, Twitter changes its prompt, and it becomes what's happening. And so as soon as that happened, you can imagine the linguistic consequences. What's happening means... Mm. He's doing something. She's doing something. They're doing something. Third-person pronouns come along. Future forms of expression, past tenses and things all come in. And the language character of Twitter changes quite dramatically in a very short period of time. So the poor old PhD students who were studying Twitter in 2007 and 2008, thinking they were doing cutting-edge linguistics, suddenly realise that they're actually doing historical linguistics because <laughs> it's all over their period. I mean, and it's, it's moving even faster now. Hey, what's that? I said it's moving even faster now probably than it was then. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it certainly is. Um, it didn't stop there. Um, 
It's still what's happening as a prompt, but other things have come along like hashtags and and all the rest of it, uh, which various classificatory devices, it is moving still very fast. And it only takes a a political change like Elon Musk coming in and taking it over and suddenly different criteria are used. Uh, Maybe the length of of the entry varies. You're now able to produce longer sentences than you were before. It's all, it happens so quickly. You're right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's so much more to it than just the change in vocab and syntax, because I was having the conversation with, I was having a conversation about deleting TikTok with my sister the other day. Like I said, I think it's like an insidious platform. You end up scrolling <laughs> on it all day. And her reason actually for not wanting to delete it was really interesting is that there's a whole set of cultural references, which you end up missing out on of the popular meme of the day or, or whatever video is going viral. And that quotation of that, is quite common in everyday humor, at least among young people. And mm. so you'd be missing out. You know, it, It's almost like an identity. It's kind of like a, a, a metaphorical country or a metaphorical geographical location where people go and you share that culture. And if you're outside of that, then you're missing out in the same way that language, for example, uh, in England, or it has specific words or cultural references. You're, you're, you're really missing out on like a, on yeah. that aspect as well. Yes, you you are. And we're now in the field of pragmatics, I I guess, really, rather than anything else. Uh, uh, Pragmatics is, you know, the study of the choices you make when you use language, the reasons for those choices and the effects that the choices convey. And uh, a big dominant element in the whole field of pragmatics is, you know, cultural presupposition, cultural background, cultural expectations, um, the things you you can take for granted when you talk to somebody else and you don't have to explain them, or the things that, as you say, you feel you're missing out of if you um, distance yourself from that particular aspect of the community. Um, yeah, this is very important, and not just in English, of course, but, you know, back to code switching and everything now. Um, the uh, The different online communities have their rules is probably too strong a word, certainly have their conventions. And these conventions are, once once you're a part of that community, you have to accept them, otherwise you're considered to be an alien, get out, um, or you find yourself not being able to understand what's going on in the group because you lack the, the correspondences that you were just referring to. I mean, this has always been the case. Mm. I remember back in the... 1980s, uh, when chat groups were first being developed, um, this was happening then. I'm remembering one chat group now, uh, I I talk about it in Language on the Internet, where uh, it was all being done through, through, uh, through type, of course. And at one point in this particular group, somebody mistyped the word computer, and it came out as comp tour. And everybody thought this was wonderful. And then and everybody started to use it. And before you knew where you were, CompTOR was the standard way of sc- spelling computer for that particular chat group. Along comes a newbie into that chat group and spells computer in the standard English way. He's condemned by the rest of the group <laughs> for not spelling computer properly. <laughs> wow. I, I, I wanted to jump in here and say this idea of rules, and it, it can also become not insidious, but you mentioned Elon Musk and Twitter when somebody else can decide 
what mm. language you are and aren't allowed to use on a certain platform. And I think that that, that is so crucial in today's climate in terms of freedom of speech and and in terms of real world application. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm of Searle's view, Orson's view, rather, that, that speech is, is an act and it's a behavior, but mm. it becomes a bit murky in my mind to what extent speech should be for example, criminalized in the same way that you might criminalize behavior. I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, well, it's it's difficult. Um, I mean, mo- monitoring of speech is absolutely routine in at all public levels in all public institutions. Uh, the BBC broadcasters uh, they they have conventions. If again, well, one can call them rules if you like, but I don't. I prefer conventions that there are certain types of language that must not be used before a certain time of the evening. Um, and then after that time of the evening has passed, uh, you're able to use a wider range. I've been talking about things like swear words and things like that. And the same point applies on the Internet. The guys who started the Internet, all those geeks out in California, at the beginning, anything goes, absolutely anything. And then they slowly realized that actually there were members of the community that they were supposed to be communicating with that were actually offended by um, certain types of language. And so they they backpedaled to some extent. And this is ha- happens all the time. I don't think there is any Internet source at the moment where there isn't some kind of monitoring taking place. Um, You know, again, I don't know what's going on today. I haven't really looked at it. But in the days when I was looking at this, there was always something, always something there. Sometimes the software was absolutely stupid and cut out. I'm, I'm talking of the days when the word sex, for instance, was considered to be a no, no, as far as any communication was concerned. So the poor citizens of Sussex uh, and Essex <laughs> were uh, eliminated. You know, as soon as you said I'm from Essex, then your, your message was banned, let alone the poor citizens of Scunthorpe. Uh, and, you know, there were all kinds of things like this. So that's the, the software is more sophisticated now, but it's still there. And this is one of the big problems that artificial intelligence is going to have to face up to. Um, mm. What sort of criteria are going to be in the background of these powerful organizations that may or may not constrain our freedom of speech? I. Um, it's also this idea of retroactively um, or rather, so going back to things that were previously written, perhaps, and changing them based on current conventions. And I really want to bring up this really interesting point of Roald Dahl. I don't know if you're familiar with what they're trying to do. I'll, oh, yes. I'll find an example here very quickly. In The oh, Witches, yeah. the use of old hags, old hags has been replaced with old crows. And I'm, yeah. I'm wondering, is that something that we should be doing? Going back, changing stuff that were previously written for the newer generations how, well, how do we square in that? My view, no, no I, I think if, if if I were Roald Dahl, I'd be very upset uh, to, to know that this is going on. What should happen is people should understand the mores of a previous generation, um, education about the, the way culture has changed, society has changed. If you start changing uh, what happened a few years ago, then where do you stop? And you go back to centuries and centuries. And of course, people are doing this, um, you, you know, changing Shakespeare and all the rest of it, simply because Shakespeare doesn't uh, 
coincide with uh, expect you know present day expectations. No, I think one one should maintain the identity of tradition of of traditional literature um, at the same time as respecting the way that society has changed and pointing out that it's no longer the case that certain types of language are going to be acceptable today um, and uh, developing, in other words, a more sophisticated, a more intelligent sense of language change and language diversity than seems to be the case at the moment. I think there's a lot of naive commentary around about this. How do you solve this? Well, I think one of the ways you solve it is by getting linguistics taught in schools, <laughs> or at least linguistic mm. awareness taught in schools. I'm not saying you should teach them Chomsky or anything like that. What I mean is that all, heaven forbid, uh, <laughs> I, I think one should uh, get a kind of more sophisticated, you know, language awareness ought to be part of the curriculum. And part of that curriculum would be to show people how the importance of language change and language diversity. And this would then act as a perspective for evaluating in a more illuminating way the literature of the past. I definitely agree with you. I just think, if, imagine going back and changing everything that's now considered offensive in all literature, and you'd end up hemorrhaging a lot of it. So for me, at least, that feels quite obvious. But there's one I wanted to ask you about, which is, slightly more difficult as it relates to control of language as well, which is language, which is languages, which are now considered politically problematic in certain ways. So French, since I'm in Paris, is quite a good example where the masculine, for example, is taken as the default. Mm. And, 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 or, you know, so for example, if there's like a group of people for anybody who doesn't know French, um, if there's a group of girls or women you use the feminine, if there's a group of men, you use the masculine. But if it's men and women, you use the masculine. And I don't know whether you think that languages should be revised on that basis or, or what this, or whether we should just preserve the language as it is or what the kind of solution is there, because I think there's a little bit of a tricky, tricky thing. Yeah. Well, there are two ways in which language can change. One is top down and the other is bottom up. Top down is when uh, an organization or a government or an international government, or whatever it might be, says, this is how it's going to be. And in France, of course, you had the academy that attempted to do this, and there are several similar organizations around the world. These have never succeeded, um, despite the best efforts of the academy and all the other organizations like it. French has continued to develop in its own way because of the bottom-up uh, pressures. Uh, bottom-up pressures towards language change uh, are the ones that are going to be successful. And it's always been that way. Um, there's nothing particularly novel about the current gender focus on language change. Um, it seems novel to people, but again, if you know the history of language, and this is another thing that might be taught in schools, you see, uh, you realise that actually it was ever thus. People have always from below, uh, motivated change, which ultimately became a standard part of the language. Uh, a very good example is the distinction between tu and vous in French, which transferred as a pressure into English in the Middle Ages, um, so that thou and you 
became used in a very similar sort of way. And then thou died away until today. It's only used in a certain very restricted circumstances. And other forms have come in alongside you to replace the thou, like, you know, you all, y'all, or you guys, and, and all of these <laughs> sorts of ways of, of, of informalizing the pronoun system. And this is all coming from down below. And it takes time. While it's taking place, there are the tensions that you refer to. A generation on, and those tensions have disappeared, and people are taking for granted things that were controversial a generation ago. You know, it affects everything, pronunciation, grammar, vocabulary, the, the, the lot. hundred years ago, one of the biggest arguments in the newspapers was the new pronunciation of the word balcony. Oh, awful. Everybody says balcony. And now this new form is coming in. Balcony. It's really? disgusting. <laughs> we must stop it. Now, what do we say today? Who remembers that controversy from 100 years ago? Nobody, of course. So we're in the middle of all oh, the very early stages of this kind of change that you're referring to, Ollie. And, and while it's happening, it's it, it's it's awkward, it's difficult, it's full of tension and full of nastiness and so on. But gradually, one form or other of the language will evolve to meet the needs of the generation for whom it's important. The older members, often who are criticising this, they'll be dead, and the new generation will take over, and slowly the language will change. But while it's happening, generational conflict, and it's usually generational, uh, will, of course, continue. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It is very awkward. Um, awkward in the sense of society-wide, there's sort of a big discussion about it. There's sort of the more obviously conservative elements who say, well, this is, this is how French is, and others who say that it needs to change to adapt to the needs of people. But the fact that it's such a hot topic just makes me want to ask you a little bit um, in the field of linguistic relativism, how much you think these little differences actually have an impact on people's thought and whether it actually can be problematic that, for example, in French... Spanish, Italian, etc. that the masculine is the default. Do you see it as actually being an, an important in shaping the way that people think about the world or no? Well, yes, because it makes you think. Um, this is not to say that language controls thought or anything like that. We're not back into that hypothesis, but it does make you think. It's made me think. Um, uh, and, and it has consequences for one's own language. I mean, I can give you a very simple example. Um, I wrote a penguin book called Linguistics back in 1969. It was full of masculine pronouns all the way through um, for, you know, the student, he is doing something, that sort of thing. The feminist movement was beginning at that time. I read some of the early feminist uh, literature at that time and was hugely impressed by it. And so for the second edition of linguistics, I changed all my pronouns and, and, and did, you know, generic nouns and things like that. It made me think, has it changed my thought? I'm not sure. Um, it certainly has in a sense, perhaps not in a cognitive sense, but certainly in a, a, a social sense. Um, it helped to shape my general attitude about gender in a way that wasn't there when I was growing up earlier. And I think that's the sort of thing that happens. It, 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 these linguistic 
um, controversies make you think in a different kind of way. And then it's a matter of not linguistics at all, but, you know, sociology and politics and economics and all the rest of it, how far the thought processes of one aspect of the community versus another, which one is going to become ultimately the winner, well, that's impossible to predict, but uh, it certainly does make you think. Fascinating. Fascinating. I I think this is just such a relevant topic nowadays. I think language, um, especially with discussion around people who might um, identify as non-binary, I think it's mm. ever more a uh, relevant topic. I think, unfortunately, we might be running out of time. But oh, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, it's already been an hour and it absolutely flew by. I, uh, it's, it's an honor speaking to you, David. And I wanted to say just as a last funny note, I, I think it's really interesting the way you speak about technology and language and how we can use language more efficiently and in better ways. Ollie and I on the side have been deciding um, who is next to speak by just using Y's and M's. So Y is you, M is me. And then if someone agrees to something, they just write K. As a short form of okay. So while we've had this interview on the side, we've just been using single letters to communicate all our all our thoughts. I just thought you might find that interesting. <laughs> certainly do. Yeah, thanks. All the best. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Brilliant. And a big wave to everybody who might be watching this. Thank you. Thank well, you so much. Thank you, David. Do you have do you have any concluding thoughts quickly before we end this? Uh I think the concluding thought is is this is very good, this kind of uh, interaction, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, the more people you can get to be involved in your initiative, uh, the better. Especially these days when, well, for me, I, I don't can't travel so much um, as I used to, so I can't get to places. Um, you don't want to be flying around all over the place if you're concerned about climate change and all of that, you know. Uh, so mm. the more you can develop this kind of uh, online interaction, the better. And, you know, all power to you guys. <laughs> it's been very successful. Uh, thank you, David, thank and you. thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been The Loaf Podcast. Tune in next week for another interesting guest. <laughs>